We've sort of come to sort of preaching through the mission statement, but we need to bear it in, we need to keep it in mind, and we've always got it in mind. And the fact that the purpose statement is to make us a missional church, it's to make us a church which has a passion for reaching out and declaring the wonderful name of Jesus like we have done this morning in our worship time. And don't get too comfortable now, Ivan, all right? Um, <laughs> But we need to be, the purpose is, the purpose of the purpose statement is to make us missional, for us to be missional. To be, it, that's a unique thing that has been, de- God's deposited in his church, is for us to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. On preaching the gospel, that's where I am this morning. We're sort of, we're going to go to the Old Testament and pick up on Ezra and Nehemiah and the struggles and the frustrations they had in actually rebuilding the temple, getting that in order, and the walls. And you say, well, that don't sound very interesting to me. But, you know, in doing God's will and doing God's purpose and doing what they believed was for the glory of God, they had to face struggles and oppositions and difficulties in those days in, in, in all that work that they had to do. And so we're going to look at those things because as the church... As we go through this age, as we seek to glorify God in his church, as we seek to be members of the church, we will face very similar struggles and difficulties and opposition. And it almost is like a rebuilding. There will always be times of rebuilding. There will always be times of repair. Things that go wrong need to be repaired. And the church is no different. Sometimes things go wrong. Life throws at us all manner of things sometimes. And there needs to be repair in God. Putting things right. Thank God that he's about restoration and putting things right. Isn't that wonderful? And, um, and so when we, you see so not so many people about, you, the preacher thinks, do I change what I'm going to say? Am I, preaching, am I preaching to anybody who needs to hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, we all do. As an early child, I can't remember a time when I've not been in church. My parents took me right from when I was a baby. So, and in those, in the old good old days, that put a smile on your face, Daphne. In the good old days... <laughs> In the good old days, it was worship in the morning, breaking of bread, as we called it then. And in the evening, at 6.30, always at 6.30, I cannot find a Bible reference for it yet, but always at 6.30, always at 6.30, you preach the gospel. And of course, as a child, um, I used to go and be taken, and used to be, I used to put the preachers into categories. Those I liked and those I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> And there was one man, in, one man in particular. We called him the bird man. He always gave us a sweet after he'd finished preaching. He made a beeline for the kids, and he gave us a sweet. And that was radical in those days. Really radical. But we appreciated it. But it made me listen to him every time he came. It made me listen. Being relevant children being relevant in our society it's so it's so so important in whatever situation and we as christians as we go out and we're missional in what we do 
we need to earn the ear of those around us. We cannot just barge in and preach the gospel at people and be missional in our approach to people. There are the odd time or two, but we need to earn the ear of those we want to tell about Jesus. And so I can remember those early times, those I did, didn't like and those I did like. And, but I grew to love just the simple gospel, gospel message of Jesus Christ. And even now, I get, I get so excited, not so much now, but when I used to hear Billy Graham preach, I got so excited when I heard him preach the gospel, which he did so many times, and it stirred my heart. And it passion. I've still got that passion today, is to be there is to tell people about Jesus and um, in the context of, of people hearing. And, and Jesus did that. And, of course, as I grew up, um, in those, the sort of setting we were, and this is not a right way of going, I believe, but I, I was pushed. I was pushed to go preaching at different church, little churches around East Kent, which I ended up doing. And um, I remember turning up at one... Um, one church on a, in the snow on the ground and I managed to get there. Nothing would put me off because I love driving in the snow. Nothing would put me off. And I, I can't remember if it was Margate or Folkestone. Now I can't really remember. But I turned up and there was about there was three people there. And I thought, so good, we can go home again. <laughs> but no. I, I said, what are you going to do? No, he says, we'll carry on as normal. <laughs> and I was, you know, my heart dropped and sang, how do you preach to three people? But you have to, you work at it, you just do it. And the thing is, but, uh, and sort of things that reflect. And I remember going to Folkestone, and um, there was a lady there, and I loved going there because all through the service she had a smile on her face, like this. It was a source of great encouragement as you preached. It's lovely to see people smiling, you know. It don't often happen in church, but there you go. But she had this broad smile, and it never seemed to stop, right from beginning to end for the whole hour. There was this smile on her face. I learned a lot about her. She wouldn't have any silver and gold. She was quite, had a bit of money in early in her days, and she sold it all and gave it to God. She said, because she wanted to say, silver and gold have I none. But such as I have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ. She wanted to have that pure motive and heart for God. And I'm not saying silver and gold's wrong, doesn't me? But that was personal to her. She came from Holland. And um, her name was Mole. And she wouldn't have things that were unnecessary because she felt that God was more important. But I used to love her this smile on the face. And it was not until I realised later, it wasn't a smile, she was squinting to see you at the front. <laughs> like this. And so for all those years, I was disillusioned about her smile on her face. But one other man who went there to preach, he said, he said, I was desperate to go to the toilet when I arrived, he said, so I barged through the door at the back. There's no light on in the room, and I tripped up and went head Base over apex, as we say. I went flat on the floor. And what did he tripped over? Mole on her knees, praying in the dark, because there was no men to pray. She was praying for the power of God to come that evening. 
that it might be seen. The power through the gospel to save, save people. And so, so this morning, I just want to reflect on the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray God it will do us good, just simply. Of course, the verse I want to preach on is John 3.16. And it's not, we all know it, it's all well known to us, isn't it? That God loved the world and gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Have everlasting life. There's one text in the New Testament that has been preached from oftener than any other in the Bible. It has been the foundation of great revivals of religion, like that among the Tahitians or that among the Telugus in India, where 2,222 people were baptised in one day, nearly 5,000 people in 30 days, and 10,000 people within 10 months, and where even during the year, drawing to its close, nearly 10,000 more souls have been baptised. It is a wonderful text. Luther called it one of the little Gospels. That's God's purpose statement, isn't it? We live in an age when every sort of public place has its purpose statement. I go into lots of schools... And I look around the notice boards as we go there to do work and stuff like that. And um, they all got their purpose statement. And as you read them, they're all very much the same. They're worded in different ways. But I think the general, the general feel and the theme behind it has been given to them. But they write their own. And they put it on the board so that everybody coming into the school can read it and understand it. If you go into residential homes, they have a purpose statement there. A statement of care. The statement of intent, so that they might be seen to actually live up to what that statement says. Very carefully worded. But God has his purpose statement, and I believe this is a purpose statement of God. To demonstrate that he loves the world. And people say, God doesn't love the world, why all the suffering and that? Why all the suffering? And yes... The love of God can be questioned in those sort of ways by us. The heart of the gospel, God's purpose statement. You could say it's the gospel in a nutshell. Peggy, you should remember this chorus at Sunshine Corner years ago, don't you? My heart was black with sin until the Saviour came in. His precious blood, I know, has washed me white as snow. And in God's word, I'm told... I walk the streets of gold. A wonderful, I don't know what the green and blue are for at the moment. But a wonderful. <laughs> what, you, can, you, you, can, you can make your own thing up there. You can come to me afterwards to give me your suggestions, yeah? I, don't, I can't remember that one. No. We used to sing it on the beach, didn't we, Peggy? We used to sing it on the beach at Whitstable. It won't wind up now. Anyway, the gospel in a nutshell, as they say. And, uh, but it's relevant to children. The color. God's interested in colours, isn't he? Because he's got them in his word. They have an authoritative way of describing what God wants us to understand. It's an authoritative way. So that we know 
you know, in our minds, what God's trying to say. Jesus was always contemporary in his approach to people. I have a book at home, it's called Our Contemporary Jesus. I've read it once, but I can't remember what it said, so I'm not quite sure it's that important. <laughs> but Jesus was always contemporary in his approach to Jesus. He did not, first of all, he did not expect them to be beyond where they were in understanding. He started where they were and negotiated them towards the kingdom of heaven to a conclusion which either they were able to accept or reject. There are preachers today who almost ram it down your throats and say, you take it, mate. But it doesn't do. <coughs> Jesus was contemporary in his approach. to He was up to date. Very often we get it out of context when we try to drag up things from the Bible, even from the Old Testament. Even as we look into the Old Testament with Ezra and Nehemiah, we need to bring it up to date, what they experience then, how we experience things today. But Jesus was always contemporary. He was right and correct in his own day. And we need to be too. Right and correct in our own day. Understanding our community. Specific situations. In the story of Lazarus who had died, Jesus clearly acted as the Lord of life and who is not bound by time or demands, but exclusively to the truth of who he is. In Luke 15, we have those three lovely stories together, which we call you know, the, the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. But as we're looking at Jesus, who was always contemporary in his approach to people, the concept of the shepherd losing a sheep or two was a very real-life situation and would cause a lot of heartache. They were the people, a rural community, and he knew, he knew that the people who in that community had experienced the heartache of losing one sheep. Losing prized possessions, whatever significance they had, and spending hours looking for them, looking for the darn thing, we might say, Night and day, there would be no rest until it was found. It's always there in the back of your mind. Where is that blessed thing? Frustration sets in, and there's no rest until you find it. Families, where there always seemed to be one loose cannon, and the difficulties and the embarrassment which these can cause. If that person suddenly turns up, the surprise and further difficulties it can cause. When we had elderly people in the home, you'd see no relative till the day they died. Suddenly the loose cannon turns up when there's money to be had or thought to be had. Jesus knew the heart of his people around him and he spoke to them like that. You know, Margaret doesn't have no rest until she finds a little spoon that's lost. And she loses a little stud. There's no rest in my house until it's found, I tell you. It's under the furniture, under the bed. Hoover it up, see if we can find it. No rest. Prize possessions, 
people, animals. And what's Jesus in his contemporary approach trying to say? My God's just like that. My Father's just like that. He fulfills his response. The, the purpose of the kingdom of heaven is to res- fulfill a responsibility towards people. Going out and looking. That responsibility falls on us too, doesn't it? Going out and looking. Not giving up until it is found. That persistence with what we have. That persistence which is in the heart of God. And that tremendous act of God's grace demonstrating a family life situation where you don't go forward with your own thoughts and your understanding, but you go forward with the heart of God. We go forward with the heart of God, this gospel. That's the contemporary approach. And Jesus was there, right in that. Is this God bearing his heart, that he's in the midst of them, the true Emmanuel? Are we bearing our heart to the people around us? Demonstrating the true Emmanuel, God with us. The whole idea of a lost world in close proximity to the greatest blessing ever, losing out in the final count by Jesus himself is the greater loss. To be lost, Jesus saying, that is to be lost, to lose out on the greatest blessings ever. That's to be lost. Shouldn't we be praising? We have been praising God and thanking him this morning. What a joy it is to have found the pearl of great price. And that's Jesus. What it is to have the greatest possession of all, to have eternal life, to salvation. You know, we've seen the TV competition, The Last Choir Standing. Have you seen that? It's great. I love it. The Last Choir Standing. There's a choir standing right now in heaven. That'll be the last choir standing. Rejoicing in heaven, Jesus said, over one sinner who repents. One person who comes into the kingdom of heaven. And we join in too. You know, I really, it's lovely. Isn't it? Helen's being baptized. Louis's been baptized. They've recently come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. We're standing singing. And so is heaven. The angels, uh, you know, what happens here causes a starburst in heaven. Those wonderful fireworks that go up from earth. They start with just a little flame on them, but it goes up. And then there's millions of little dots of light around. Millions of little dots of light. That's what it's like. What happens here in God's purpose and plan creates a starburst in heaven. What a wonderful thing it is, you know, when someone... Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, said Jesus, in that same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The shepherd has taken full responsibility for that one sheep. 
and worked out that full dedication of his task to make it possible for the sheep to be taken by the shepherd himself back to where he belonged. Back to where he belonged. And Jesus declares that responsibility in his own life, in his own mission. And that's the same for us too, isn't it? For the woman who has lost a treasured possession, the personal value it was to her. Do we realize that we're actually a personal value to God? Personal value? (coughs) To not have it was a distressing situation. And so God bears his heart. For God not to have us or anyone as part of his family is a distressing situation to him. And now I want to turn to that John 3.16, having looked at Jesus' contemporary in his approach to people. Let's read John 3, shall we, together? We have to remember that Jesus here is there and his dialogue with Nicodemus, his reception of him and what he says to him is completely in context of what I've just said. Jesus always has a contemporary approach to who he's dealing with. When he says something like being born again, which we're all familiar with that term, it really meant something to Nicodemus to experience a new birth, rebirth, a spiritual birth from above. So let's read it with that in mind. Nicodemus was, he was the top guy around at that time. He was the cream, as we say, the cream of the Jewish community. And he'd sneaked out at night Now, I don't know this for fact, but someone had said once upon a time there was probably a curfew for people going out at night time, especially this sort of man because of the the situation in 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 that region at that time. And so here's a man who dares to ask a question. We see him back along the wall, you know, maybe. I don't know, but it just maybe highlights a little thing for us. What it takes to get to Jesus sometimes. Or take to what we want to know. Let's read it. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, that was a very humiliating thing for him to say to another man. Rabbi. It's saying, I actually esteem you above myself. I'm coming to you for words of advice. I'm coming to you because I want to know something. What you have to say will be important. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. 
For no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You could say, how rude was that for my question not to be asked? You know, the question of who Jesus is is not up for grabs. It's not actually up for discussion. We do discuss it, and quite rightly so. But the question of who Jesus is, the Son of God, is not up for grabs. It's not really up for discussion. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth... Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can a man be born when he's old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Unless a man is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again, but he was, wasn't he? The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. I was thinking of David and Ireland and their awful situation just recently and um, the question why kept cropping up time and time again, the question why. And I heard this on Premier Radio, a a quote by Blaise Pascal. 
There are reasons of the heart that reason may never know. There are reasons of the heart that reason may never know. And I, I did mention it to them, and I think, I think you just have to be content that you may not understand. Something which reason cannot work out. Something which reason cannot work out. We find this in the gospel, don't we? We find it, and Paul told us that the mystery, I declare to you the mystery. But there are also reasons in the heart that reason may never know. And sometimes we say, well, why did I do that? And sort of things like that. But the whole question, the whole question of reason is so important. Here, this little verse tucked away in chapter 3 is all about reason. We have six fours and seven and eight, no, so seven fours and eight that's in this passage. Four, reason, that, reason. For God so loved. You see, Jesus was working in the context of a man, of a man who knew God. And he knew the history of the people. So Nicodemus wasn't unaware of God. In fact, he was fully informed about God. For God, that. Mr. A.T. Pearson, an old gospel preacher, said, if you look at this, this one verse, he said, there are ten important words in here in five pairs. Ten words in five pairs. This is interesting. You have two persons of the Godhead, the Father and the Son. Two acts of amazing communication, he loved and he gave. You have two words, which is the intent of God to where this gospel should be preached, the world and whosoever. Two words which show what our response should be, to believe and to have. And there are two sure outcomes dependent upon my choice. Ten words in five pairs, they go together. But here we're talking about reasons. Jesus is now going to reason with this man who's come to him with a very important question. Tim Keller, a man from America who leads URC Church, is it in New York or Washington? New York in Washington, has written a book, The Reason for God. It's quite an interesting book, really, because it's dealing with honest doubters. It's a book aimed at honest doubters. And he said, and you see a little video uh, clip on the, on the website if you turn to it, and it says, I've discussed and talked with many, many people in my community, and I find that their questions are honest doubts about Christianity and about God. Do you think we have an honest doubter or an honest coming to Jesus with an honest question? I think we do. And in a sense, we could say, here's the first reason, the reason for God. The reason for God. Nicodemus said, no man 
no man could do the things that you're doing in the way that you do them unless God is with him. And so what Nicodemus is saying here, we, I, have seen something so amazing about you, Jesus, that it's quite certain in our minds and our heart that in some way we don't know how God is with you. God is with you. And so the miracles and the teachings of Jesus were a reason for God. Now, if the people around us see the things that we do and the way we do them, it's going to give them the cause to say, there's a reason for God. There is a reason for God. They're going to see our behaviour in our workplace. They see the way we do them. They're going to say, there's a reason for God. And as they looked at Jesus, they saw something which challenged the heart. Something which challenged the heart. And so we see Nicodemus. He's come. He's come. No man could do these things. A reason for God. God's purpose statement, why is it so? Nicodemus is the cream of the Jewish crop. One dare not dream of having life any better than he has it. He's a Jew, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, the highest legal, legislative and judicial body of the Jews, and a highly respected teacher of the Old Testament scripture, Can you imagine being Nicodemus and having Jesus tell you that all of this is not enough to get you into the kingdom of God? But isn't that precisely where we are? We live in a Christian country. We have so many blessings, so many things to do. We have a peculiar way of life as Christians and believers. The people are saying, you tell me I'm no good as I am. This is precisely what Jesus tells Nicodemus. If a man like Nicodemus is not good enough for the kingdom of God, then who is? We need to take the authority of scripture and just, we know, we declare, but it's how we declare it, isn't it? That all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We just failed to be what God requires. It's failed to be. And so Jesus is giving to Nicodemus reasons. As Nicodemus is trying to work it, call him Nick. Tale of two Nickies, eh? Nicodemus. To many Jews, to be born a Jew was to be born into the kingdom of God. We know that the Jews also believe that Gentiles are born lost. Doesn't give us much hope in their thinking, does it? Even the Jerusalem church struggled with this issue. Imagine the shocked look on the face of Nicodemus when Jesus tells him that his natural birth as a Jew will not save him and that he must be reborn from above. The implication is clear Unless Nicodemus is reborn from above, he will not see the kingdom of God. Here is a man who thinks he has 
reserved seats on the 50-yard line of heaven. It is amazing, really, how many people think that heaven will be automatically be there for me and I have a place simply because I'm born in this country and simply because I've lived a good life. This is the harsh reality of the gospel. But it's the way we do it in a contemporary setting. Belief, this is also said by Blaise Pascal, and it's interesting, belief is a wise wager. Granted that faith cannot be proved, what harm will come to you if you gamble on its truth and it proves to be false? Belief is a wise wager. Granted that faith cannot be proved, what harm will come to you if you gamble on its truth and it proves false? What it's saying is, I've got a few shares in the share market. I'm not sure whether I'm going to get any return from them, but I'll buy a few just in case. (coughs) Just in case. The gospel of Jesus Christ is far more authoritative than that. We have read, for God so loved the world that he gave, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Reasons. Reasons. God doesn't gamble with people's lives. We have seen that from Luke 15. He offers his son as a down payment that promises us life and the final payment that secures my redemption proved by the eternal life that ensues. Look at it in purely terms like that. Jesus is my down payment and he's also my final payment. God has not provided any real estate of truth that calls for a gamble. God has not provided any real estate of truth that calls for a gamble on it. It is more sure than that. That sure word which I was talking about. No one to counsel, no one to give a sure word. This word is a sure word. That's why it brings revival. That's why it causes people to change their mind. That's why it causes us to follow Jesus Christ. Because it's a sure word. So Jesus defends his presence and power to a serious inquirer who had strayed from his position and power. He does so being aware that he is approaching a higher authority to seek reasons for his unique activities, which had got him thinking. The father was drawing Nicodemus to himself. If we read in John 6, verse 44, it tells them, no one can come to me unless the father himself draws them. No one can come unless the father draws them. We could say this, no one can actually finally get to Jesus unless the Father has been involved in that process. 
God doesn't gamble with his truth. He provides it in the right place at the right time. God's not interested in people who are saying, and I say this carefully, God doesn't got to waste his truth on people who are not interested in it. That is my choice, that is your choice. And Jesus was exactly the same when he came, preaching in his contemporary society. If we talk to people about Jesus, we, we soon know in a few moments of time if that person's really interested, if they're an honest seeker or an honest doubter, or whether they're just to waste time. And we, we know in the workplace, there are many, many times in environments, you know, when that happens, doesn't it? Someone will crop up a question about religion or about some obscure question in order just to throw everybody into confusion. Which came first, the chicken or egg? And that's very relevant to me. <laughs> Bill's just given me another piece of memorabilia yesterday, yeah? About Julian Brazer's wife trying to get blue eggs for her conservative husband. <laughs> I haven't got a Christian egg yet, so. <laughs> These questions are thrown up to cause confusion and just a debate, just to enjoy a good talking point and debate. Nothing wrong with that, really. But you know, God's not gambling with his truth. As he gives it to me. He gives it to you. That verse in Isaiah, God's word will not return to him void, but it will accomplish the purpose and the reason unto he sent it. And we've been learning recently about the importance and the power of God's word. And in the little bit, he said, uh, But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. The light coming is the word coming. Is the truth, is the authority coming. Is the authority coming. God doesn't gamble with his truth. Jesus in Nicodemus saw Jesus as a reason for God. And very quickly, there are three other lines here. In this verse, for God so loved me, well, we had the reason for God. We have the reason for faith. Each of us is unique, and God hasn't trashed his prize because of our awfulness. You know, current-day marriage breakups very often spell out a selfish kind of justice, which overlooks our own mistakes only to trash your spouse for theirs. Scorn personalities and argue the issues. God knows that man, as his pinnacle of creation, has the unique capacity to make choices depending on understanding, not his instinct. And God deposits his truth with us so that we reason. We reason, yeah, I believe this, I accept it. The reason for faith God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes. What's the reason for faith then? That God has given his son. That's the reason for faith. The reason for faith. The reason for love. For God so loved. 
What is the reason for love that he gave his only begotten son? Simple, the reason for love. The reason for giving. God gave his one and other. What's the reason for giving? That we should not perish, but have everlasting life. Our God is full of reasons. The word is full of reasons to make honest doubters into true believers. And as Jesus lived and he spoke to Nicodemus, he saw this man and came to him and approached him. And he did approach him, although Nicodemus approached Jesus. The non-answer of his question tells us that Jesus was now approaching him. That's a bit like the calling of God, isn't it? You know, the Father's drawing, and Jesus approaches. And so does that connection. And of course, Nicodemus, Nic- Jesus said to Nicodemus, you're his teaching, so you don't understand it. Many things he didn't understand. That's why God gave him the reason why he needed to be reborn from above. Being a Jew, says Jesus to him in many, many words, being where you are, Nicodemus, you know, you need to be born again. And the same is for us today. We have many things that we hold on to, things in this life. People hold on to many, many things in this life, achievements, good works, and all sorts of things. And the word is, so you need to let them go for the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's, you know, it's no point hanging on them. To be reborn from above is to have Jesus as your saviour. To have a spiritual rebirth. This Nicodemus didn't understand. We didn't understand it, did we? At one time, it seemed totally foreign and difficult to us. But then it comes, doesn't it? If the love of Jesus approaches with all the reason that that brings, you cannot help but say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done for me. Thank you for dying for me. Reason for giving, that we may not be lost. We may not lose out on the best that's ever to be. New life in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you so much forgiving and sending Jesus. We thank you, Father, that we take very closely and very appreciatively this morning the fact that you love us so much. And thank you that that is still, that is still the way that you see the world that you made and created. It's the same way that you're moving towards us into every city, every town, every village, every people, community, every nation. God loved the world. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You're the reason for God to show his love. Thank you, Jesus. Bless us, Lord, we pray. Thank you for our time together. Time of worship, Lord. The time that your word encourages us and lifts us up. That the gospel, Lord, is so wonderful and gets us excited. Thank you, Jesus. Praise your name. Hallelujah.